Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith. That's right. This train is building up ahead of steam each and every day that we are on. So what I want you to do is grab your ticket, get on board, enjoy the ride. This train is going to take you on a journey, turn some corners, and maybe pick up a few passengers along the way. So what do we have on tap for today's episode? Even I don't know that. So the best way to find out is tune in and enjoy the ride of the A-Train Sports Talk podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. And we're about ready to get this train on the track. So stay tuned. It's the A-Train Sports Talk podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. The Coach's Corner is sponsored by The Health Connection, the best choice for alternative medicine and holistic healing. The Health Connection has two locations in Wichita, Kansas, 1709 West Douglas Avenue and 3101 North Rock Road, Suite 170. And they also have a third location at 1001 North Rose Hill Road in Rose Hill, Kansas. Check them out on the web at thehealthconnection.online or give them a call 316-841-0003. Back to the show. Choo-choo! Welcome into the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith. For the last couple of years, I've been trying to track somebody down. She's as elusive as Barry Sanders. Quicker than a speeding bullet, faster than a locomotive. Been around the world. And every time you see her on Instagram, Facebook, or whatever... She always spin the basketball. Basketball's going behind her back. She played at Wichita State. She's a homegrown Kansas talent. Kansas talent. And I believe, and she'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that she is the first non-African-American female to suit up and play with the Harlem Globetrotters and is now currently on the coaching staff at Butler County. My dear friend, and I also call her my sister. Hannah Mighty Mortimer. Hannah, welcome to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I am so elated to have you. It's been a long time since we hooked up. As a matter of fact, I, I got to share this story. Mm-hmm. I used to see Hannah working out intensely at Vassa Fitness Center. And I call myself trying to get in shape. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to hang out with her. It ended up being a spectacle because I think I ended up watching her more than I ended up working out because I was just in awe. She has such a fantastic work ethic, which is why come I believe she got picked up by the Globetrotters and got to see parts of the world. And, you know, she's also a God-friendly, so I'm going to put that out there. So I believe that the gift that she has in basketball has made room for her and opened up doors for you to see plenty of places. So, Hannah, welcome in. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the journey. What was it that made you pick up a basketball in the first place? 
Yeah, well, it, it all started. I was actually uh, my first sport was wrestling because my uh, whole family was a wrestling family. Um, that's what my dad, my dad did when he was a kid was a wrestler, and that's what my brother was was doing also. So that was my first start, and I uh, or first sport that I start uh, that I started with. And uh, my mom, she decided I couldn't, I shouldn't be wrestling boys anymore because at that time there was no girls wrestling. Of course, now there is. There's you know state girls wrestling nationals and stuff but back when I you know was was growing up it wasn't there so my dad kind of my mom put a basketball in my hands and then my dad the first thing he taught me to do with it was to spin it because as a wrestler that's the only thing he knew how to do he couldn't dribble or shoot but he sure could <laughs> do a trick or two so uh he uh taught me that and uh kind of the rest was uh history well he actually the reason kind of coincides with the globetrotters is uh my dad first off told me about who Lynette Woodard was, which the first female to ever play for the Globetrotters. And ever since then, it kind of basketball stuck and the Globetrotters stuck. So that's kind of how my journey with basketball started. And then ever since I started playing wide ball, it was, you know, it was off to the races. So I imagine whether you was playing team sport or like you said, playing at the Y or whatever you was playing at, you was probably the one that everybody wanted to have on their team because looking at your skill set, I'm like, and I know it didn't just happen overnight, but to me, you make it look so easy. So how did you develop such a skill set? I know it had to be endless camps and dedication, right? Yeah. So, you know, being so short on my end, I had to figure out something, how to be different in the game because, you know, I'm five, I'm five foot four. The average female in college who plays basketball is almost six foot. Um, So I just decided that dribbling was going to be my thing. And, um, I'm one of those people, if I'm not amazing at it, I'm going to work every single day until it's something I can master. And that's just kind of how I guess the game of basketball went. I first started with dribbling and I was like, okay, I'm going master, to master this skill to become great and to set myself apart uh, so I can play at the different levels that I want. And then I realized, you know, okay, I got dribbling down. Let me, let me master shooting. Okay, I got shooting down. You know, let me master defense. I got all this down. Let me master some tricks with this too. So that's kind of how it all came. It was just, I kept challenging myself every day. And that's what I, I still currently do. I have to have like a physical, a physical challenge, like fitness and, um, you know, basketball has been mine for the longest time. So that's kind of how um, I got, I guess, so uh, skilled at it was just, you know, a lot of hours and um, practicing when, you know, no one was around. So. So it would be best to say then that you were probably the first one in the gym and they pretty much had to pry you out of the gym. I, I could just see you being yeah. one of those ones. The gym is closed, and you're trying to find a way to sneak into the gym. Always. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a gym rat. I'm a gym rat. <laughs> so, I stay in the gym. So, I don't care if it's open or closed. I'm open it. All right. So, so you know, I'm throw this out there. We're gonna have to meet up at Vassal one of these days. Now, I, I met oh, the yeah. one. I met the one on Woodline. Now, I mean, I could go to both of them, but we're gonna have to meet up one day. I want you to get okay, me yeah. set on course. I need to get that structure back. So Yes, no, yeah, for sure. So tell me about your high school playing day career leading in. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually, I'm from a really small um, school. It's called Southeast of Saline and kind of the middle of Gypsum, Kansas, which nobody really knows where that's at. I've heard um, of it. Three, okay, yeah, perfect. Well, it's a, you know, it's a 3A school, small town. Um, I, you know, I started, uh, I was playing um, basketball, obviously, when I was little and, uh, all the coaches were super excited for every level I got to. Like the junior high coaches would always tell my parents, oh, I can't wait for Hannah, you know, be a sixth grader so she can play. And then 
goes to high school. I can't wait for Hannah to be a freshman so she could play. So um, my middle school and high school career, you know, um, from the hard work that I established as a kid and just my parents um, being able to, you know, support me and put me in all these teams and camps, I was kind of already prepared to play at those levels. And um, high school basketball was just fun. I had an 87% winning record all four years. So, you know, I was blessed enough to be on a team that I loved and that I could have fun with and that I could learn and grow with. So my high school uh, basketball career was awesome. And as well as my AAU and traveling, it was just, you know, I've, I've been really blessed with my whole career. It's been very, you know, challenging and a lot of hard work, but, you know, God plays a hand in all of it and sets it all up and aligns it for you. So I've definitely been blessed with that. And at the end of the day, I can even vouch for this with all of the accolades and credentials. I mean, you mentioned 87% winning percentage all the time you were at high school. Mm-hmm. You pro- you, I'm pretty sure your AAU team, pretty much the same winning percentage. Yep. And yet through it all, you still remain with your feet on the ground in an humble spirit and easy to approach. So mm-hmm. after your high school plan days, how many division one scholarship offers did you get we i know you end up at wichita state but outside mm-hmm. of that how many offers did you actually get i actually for you know for the sport of basketball i got zero i got zero division one offers at high school um i got most of my division one offers for softball but i did get uh i did get a lot of junior college uh offers and interests and of course naia interest when i was right out of high school in basketball. And that's kind of where my story really does start is uh, my college career. Cause you know, I'm one of those, un, you know, I wasn't re- really highly recruited um, out of high school or my Juco. So I, you know, it's just kind of, I'm one of those people I'll make away. So um, yeah. So basically you took on the Fred Van Vliet mantra, yep. which is bet on yourself, right? Yep, and that's my dude. I played with him. I was a senior, or I was a junior when he was a senior. So Fred definitely instilled that in me. Yeah, for sure. I took on his that kind of mindset. You know, make away. Okay. So before we get to you meeting Fred and probably I know hanging out with him, mm-hmm. how did you land at Wichita State? Yeah. So that's another kind of crazy story. Um, so I was playing at a junior college, uh, Brown Mackey College in Salina. Brown um, Mackey. It was my, okay. Yeah, it was my last year. Uh, I actually uh, verbally committed to a school, Abilene Christian University, which in is Division Texas. One. Yep, Division yep. One in Texas. My uh, credits from my junior college, uh, the way the school is ran, it was one class a month. So I wasn't eligible to play right away because of uh, in the NCAA and eligibility. Um, so anyways, I kind of I pretty much couldn't go to Abilene Christian because I wouldn't have been able to play right away. Um, so, uh, I decided to verbally commit to a division two school in Texas, but I couldn't transfer until that next semester. So, uh, I started, uh, well, I guess to begin the story, I had one year at Kansas State University that I just went in as a student because, uh, right out of, right out of uh, high school, I had knee surgery. So I didn't, I really didn't want to hop into sports right away, but cutting back to where I was at, um, I was at, I ended up going to WSU for a semester so I could uh, just get courses so I could transfer to play at a D2. And um, the WSU team, they knew I was there and their coaching staff kind of knew I was there from the graduate assistants and they were having a bunch of injuries and they uh, asked me, you know, I was on campus. I, uh, they asked me to meet them, you know, at the women's basketball offices. And I said, sure. 
and uh, they were like, hey, we want you to be on, on the practice squad for a little bit. We know you're transferring to your next school. This won't hurt your eligibility. But, you know, we need a couple bodies right now because we have, you know, they had like six injuries. Wow. So I was like, oh, for sure. I was like, count me in. I'm there. You know, I was my school is I'm waiting on my school. I needed practice to get back, you know. And uh, anyways, when I do anything, I'm going to do it, you know, 110 percent. And that's what I told them. I said, I'm not going to just come in here and have fun and practice. I'm going to go hard. And they were like, that's what we expect. And so two weeks later, they were like, actually, Hannah, you know, you're working so hard. You're giving, you know, you're doing amazing. We want to put you on the roster for this semester. So, you know, in case we need you, um, you'll be there. And I was like, well, as long as it doesn't mess up me transferring to my, you know, school I verbally committed to, the D2 school in Texas, I was cool with it. They were like, yeah. So anyways, I suited up for the rest of the semester and then um, at the at the beginning of the new semester, um, when I was, well, right before the beginning, I was going to transfer, and then they offered me a scholarship to stay and said, you know, we want you in this program not to leave us and go to another one. So that's kind of how my journey at Wichita State started and my college, and you know, that end of my college basketball started. I And I'm so glad that they made that move to keep you here because I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have met you. So, kudos. I think that was probably about eight or I mean eight months after I met you is because I, I would have been gone so yeah I definitely would have been gone if that didn't happen so we definitely would not have you know ran into each other so that's kind of that is a cool thing right there so to Wichita State I say thank you for keeping him here <laughs> yeah. thank you because <laughs> <Thank> you, <Wichita. laughs> it, it's, it's been hard enough trying to get on this podcast so thank y'all for at least <laughs> keep getting us in contact okay <laughs> yes. Yes. so Here's what I'm going to do right here. I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, we're going to talk about your playing days at Wichita State, the type of competition you faced, and what it was like experiencing being in the black and gold. So after this yep. little brief break, we'll be back. More with Hannah on the A-Train Sports Talk. She's locked on the train and in the coach's corner. Let's go. The Coach's Corner is sponsored by The Health Connection, the best choice for alternative medicine and holistic healing. The Health Connection has two locations in Wichita, Kansas, 1709 West Douglas Avenue and 3101 North Rock Road, Suite 170. And they also have a third location at 1001 North Rose Hill Road in Rose Hill, Kansas. Check them out on the web at thehealthconnection.com dot online or give them a call 316-841-0003 back to the show choo choo hi this is tracy host of the moonstar podcast and you are listening to a train buckle up baby and enjoy the ride Woo! Welcome back. We have kidnapped, held a young lady hostage. Probably more time than she expected because I didn't have no set format. I know I just want to talk and have fun with Hannah. 
one of basketball's greatest talents, pound for pound, inch for inch. If I was going to start a team, she would definitely be my point guard. So, Hannah, welcome back for this, what would probably be our final segment. Got a lot on tap for the day, but nothing could be complete without this coach's corner. And Ashley, you're the first one that's actually getting three segments on the coach's corner. Hey, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we got so much to talk about. I mean, we couldn't do it in one podcast. We'll probably have to do a part two, kind of like I, because I'm also doing Black History, and I'm doing a feature on a, a guy named Marlon Briscoe, who actually the first African-American quarterback to start in the old yep. AFL for the Denver Broncos. So yep. that's like an extended uh, segment as well, too. So you get that extended, you know, one part one, part two, part three segments. And I'm blessed to have you on. I'm honored to have you on. Hannah is not only my friend, she is my sister, whether she wants to claim me or not. By the way, <laughs> you will be at my wedding October the 15th. So whatever you're doing that day, keep that day clear on your calendar. Tell the team, hey, I won't be here this day. I'm going to be at my brother's wedding. Oh, you already know I'm there. You All right. The... <laughs> so the reason this is called the Coach's Corner because Hannah is actually a coach. We just haven't gotten to that part yet. Uh, Hannah, before we also get into her coaching, has some basketball camps and drills that you run. Would you want to expound on that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I do a, a lot of uh, basketball camps and clinics, and I also do basketball skills training along with coaching. So I, I'm actually putting together a basketball clinic tour um, for this summer. It's going to focus on uh, smaller schools around the Kansas area, schools that don't normally, you know, they're not, or not schools, but athletes who don't norm are not normally able to go to, let's say, a KU camp or you know all the big time basketball camps, because um, that's kind of the the place I you know the school I was at. There's not a, a lot to do. There's not a lot of camps to go to. I was fortunate enough to be able to go, um, but I want to pretty much bring a clinic to those schools, um, and uh, that's kind of what I'm doing this summer. It's going to be called the the Barnyard Tour. So uh, I'm excited for that. I'm going to be um, kicking that off here um, in the next couple months but uh, yeah so uh, in the Wichita area I also do skills and development training and um, as well as uh, coaching at Butler women's basketball and that's the perfect segue so you landed the job as an assistant at Butler County this is in your you're in your third year now if I'm correct is that correct mm -hmm. yep so third. what has that journey been like and on on a team level and as far as coaching staff, what has the team and coaching staff been like since you have arrived there and what have you inputted at, in that program? Yeah. So, well, uh, when I first got there three years ago, uh, you know, I, I didn't know really, I knew how to coach cause I've been training for so long. I've been training athletes, but I didn't really know how to coach a college team. So going into it, I just was, uh, my mind was like, okay, I'm going to be a sponge. I'm going to absorb every, all the info I get from not only the coaching staff, you know, but also the players, you know, and the women on the team. So uh, I just went in there as an open, you know, a sponge and an open book. And I was just, you know, ready to explore and learn uh, the game and learn the ins and outs of, of coaching. And, you know, one of the main things I, I learned right away is, you know, it's only about 30 percent of X's and O's. It's it's 70 percent of, you know, relationships with the people around you and on the on the coaching staff and as well as, uh, you know, your players. And that's another thing I learned. Um from Jody as well is, you know, 
the basketball part is going to be here, but it's the relationships you hold with, you know, everybody in the program that is really going to change everybody's life, not only theirs, but yours as well. Absolutely. And, and you, and you mentioned Jody. So I, I know Jody has played a big part in your development. And like you said earlier, you <clears throat> still stay in touch with her and mm-hmm. she helps you out a lot. And I've had her on my podcast a few times and I probably need to reach out to her. I know she's at Southern Illinois, home of the Salukis, mm-hmm. back in the Valley. Okay. Yep. <laughs> back in, and she's back, going to run it too. She's, they're going to SIU. They're about to take off. I know it. Absolutely. And, uh, one of the things that you hit on, and, you know, like I said, I had her on my podcast, and, you know, there's always that one that wants to make a negative comment, but, you know, because I posted on my Facebook page, and I'm like, okay, there's that one negative person right there. Anyway, that comment doesn't count. But yep. you mentioned that she is a life coach, and that's how I met her was through Scott Styles, who used to be at KGSO Radio, and uh, they had an event, My One Life, and she was the keynote speaker along with Lou Holtz. And that's how I had the chance to meet her. And that's when I found out that, you know, she is a person that is beyond the court, beyond the X's and O's, like you mm-hmm. said, the relationships. So how are the relationships that you have built thus far at Butler County? Yeah, so I just, uh, you know, first I wanted to connect with the coaching staff and, and just, you know, build those relationships. You got to, you know, when you're on a, a program and a program of that, status you know because butler women's basketball we're always you know pretty much ranked nationally and and just the butler sports everyone's ranked so just coming into a program like that i just wanted to hold you know good relationships with the coaching staff so we can continue the winning and then when it comes to the players you know i was i was a junior college player i know what it's like juco is tough you know playing junior college you don't necessarily want to be there but you have to be there you're there for a reason so I took the mindset of, you know, I know how I felt going through junior college. So I'm just going to, you know, be a ear for them and really be someone that they can lean on. You know, I wasn't going to push the basketball as much. Obviously, I'm the coach that, hey, get in the gym. I'm I'm the skills development um, coach. So, but I wanted them to know they can come in my office and we can talk. You know, we can go out about life. Uh, basketball, you know basketball is a sport but life is is everything so I wanted to be a person that they know that they could come to about anything even if it didn't have anything to do with basketball so that's the type of relationship I wanted to create with the Butler women on the team absolutely now there is a story that it's picked up a little bit of steam it made the rounds on Twitter and I don't Mm -hmm. know if you follow the power five school so to speak Mm -hmm. but uh coach and she's her title didn't really coach. I forget what her role is, but she sits on the bench. Mm-hmm. But she caught flack because of her, as Yahoo Sports called it, her Yo. fly wear. Okay. Her and my theory is the women are still dressing up, whereas the men are just being lazy. Mm-hmm. So is there a appropriate or non-appropriate wardrobe for women to wear? Because one of the comments was, I thought women weren't allowed to wear high heels on the basketball court. Women been wearing Pat Summit wore high heels. Yeah. Jody, I'm like, where is this person coming from? What planet are they from? So do you think that she was wearing inappropriate wear? I didn't think nothing was wrong with it personally, but you've been a coach and I know how coaches used to dress now, coaches dress now. 
what is there an appropriate way for the coaches to, to dress? <laughs> yeah, I mean, coming with, uh, you know, and I know Sydney Carter, the, the woman in the, you know, in the picture. Uh, she, I've, I've known her for a little bit. She's, you know, part of the coaching trees. So, you know, with her outfit, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with it. She wasn't revealing at all. And, you know, like you said, uh, it seems like since, you know, COVID has, you know, hit the basketball world and the dressing has gone down a little bit. And like you said, especially kind of on the men's side, it's more lax, but the women are still kind of held to keep a dressier, you know, a dressier outfit on game days. But um, I really think I was talking to, you know, a couple coaches and they want to go away with the whole business attire altogether, but no, no, I don't like that because I think it should be, you know, the game day is special and, you know, you should treat it like that. You don't wear your, your uh, game Jersey in practice. We wear practice jerseys for that, you know, right. So I think it should be the same in dressing up. Um, you know, the coaches should dress up. Um, but, I think, you know, women, you know, we should be able to wear heels. We should be able to wear whatever we want respectfully. And I think her outfit, I mean, she had a long sleeve shirt on with a turtleneck. Right. Her pants were just a little tight. That's about it. Right. So Skin tight. <laughs> I'm going to just be real with you. She had a turtleneck and a long sleeve. Her pants were just tight. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. I thought, and I thought it was cute. It was a, I think it was a breast cancer awareness game. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, that's my personal opinion. I do think, um, women you know i think you know we should be able to wear heels and all that and and if people want to make you know make ruckus over some pants man you're worried about the wrong thing right <laughs> there's a lot other stuff going on not only in the basketball world but in the world in general <laughs> we, absolutely you know, leave, leave us sydney alone <laughs> absolutely well miss yeah. well miss hannah you know what I, I appreciate you jumping on board the a train sports talk podcast this this will be published. It will be for human listening later on today after I get all my other spots put in. But I want to say I'm so elated. And next time, don't take so long. Oh, I won't. Thank <laughs> you for having me on here. This was so much fun. We'll definitely have to hit another podcast. And I'm, I'm going to reach out to Jackie and see, you know, uh, see if we can do a double, do, you know, do a double one and get, get that going. Absolutely. Make that, make that happen. So, uh, yeah. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, my special guest, the mighty one. Yes, you can't say her name without putting the mighty one in there. The mighty Hannah Mortimer, my friend, my sister, my bestie. One of which, one well, she did spend some time in Wichita. One of Kansas's great unsung hero. Once again, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You know, I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, I just feel blessed that we were able to connect, you know, way back in the day at Boston. And, you know, I'm I'm excited to what our future holds together as friends as well. So Absolutely. And I want to say this in closing. Always do this. You, to me, you epitomize Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men. Mm-hmm. That they may mm. see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. I believe the Father in heaven is very pleased with what you're doing in oh, the game you. of life. So continue to do what you're doing. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Once again, my friend Hannah Mortimer on the A Train Sports Talk podcast. I am going to take another break. And when I come back, we will get back into my black history. 
continuing the story on Marlon Briscoe. It is the A Train Sports Talk podcast. Your host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith. A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Want to let you know that this podcast is listener-supported. That's right. Driven by you, the listener. So if you want to advertise or sponsor a segment, simply reach out to me at 316-553-2010 or hit me up at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com to get your ad or sponsorship ran on this podcast. Once again, a train sports talk podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Black History Month. Black History Sports Month. Moments in Black History in Sports. On the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. So stay tuned and enjoy. Moments in Black History and Sports on the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Once again, special thanks to Hannah Mortimer. And this is an an extended version of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast because uh, 
Today was the Coach's Corner, and we had three segments, and it was well worth the time. The wait was well worth it. Like they say, good things come to those who wait. So now, we get back into our moments in black history, and we are continuing the story of Marlon Briscoe. And we talked about his journey from the packing house to the pros to him becoming a starter eventually. And now we will move into Marlon Briscoe moves into the spotlight as the sounds of lift every voice resonates in the background. And in the third installment of this series about the life and legacy of Marlon Briscoe, modern American pro football's first black starting quarterback. We're now focusing on the last month of his rookie season when he started the final four games. As the story goes, in 1968, a small quarterback from Omaha, Nebraska, took the field for the Broncos and made history as modern American pro football's first black starting quarterback. He dazzled and delighted crowds in Mile High, but a year later, he was gone from Denver. As we celebrate Black History Month, we're taking a closer look at the life and legacy of Marlon Briscoe. Today, we delve into the pressure he faced as a black quarterback and how the rookie sensation finished out the year as Denver's starter. This is the third story in the series. Part one focused on Briscoe's youth in South Omaha and how he reached the pros. Part two was about how he managed to break the AFL's color barrier at quarterback. So now we get into the third part of this story. Every day, Eric Crabtree checked the the mail. Early in the mornings, after he had arrived at the Broncos headquarters, he sifted through the letters addressed to players. Maybe there was a note here and there for him, but that's not what he was looking for. He was searching for envelopes addressed to Marlon Briscoe. Fan mail was fine. He left those. He was looking for the death threats. It wasn't a constant stream. Some days he'd take a peek and leave happy to be empty-handed. On the bad days, he took what he found and deposited it in the trash. He got, he got not that much, but enough to demoralize you, Crabtree says. I was trying to protect him. For nearly 50 years, Briscoe never knew. The subject would come up at times in his conversation with other black athletes, and he'd marvel at his luck compared to his contemporaries. After the Broncos announced his first start in October, he received plenty of mail, but he said the only letters he got were nice. They were all wishing me luck, he told the Omaha World Herald. A lady in Boston even sent a prayer. It wasn't until maybe six years ago that Crabtree revealed the truth. Such was the territory that came with being black and plain quarterback. And racial tensions were especially high in 1968. About six months earlier, Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated, setting off demonstrations 
across much of the country. Denver, despite its reputation, even at the time as a progressive haven, was not exempt from conflicts either. As close to three players before the Broncos season opener unrest exploded in North Denver after an incident between a black teenager and a white store owner. You know, 68 was a volatile year on every front, Frisco says. On every front, black people, we had to undergo a lot of stuff. Having the first black quarterback in 1968, when 68 was the most pivotal year in our country's history, to break the barrier at that position was unique. A lot of it was divine intervention. I don't know. Bobby Kennedy, you had Dr. King, you had just so many different scenarios for black and white life back in those days. Amid all of this, being a pioneer for black Americans put a spotlight on Briscoe and whatever potential for glory Briscoe held was balanced by a potential animosity. The sport had been integrated at almost every level for some time, but that wasn't necessarily the case at every position. The game's decision makers deeply abided by racial stereotypes in shaping their rosters. And as such, they decided, whether consciously or not, that black men were not capable of playing the positions that were seen as the realm of the intellectual athlete. When Briscoe broke that barrier at quarterback, some could not handle what they viewed as an intrusion on the natural order of things. To many fans at what would come to be known as Mile High Stadium, though, Briscoe may have been considered a welcome interloping figure. To them, he was nothing short of a rookie sensation for a Broncos needing an injection of excitement. In his first career game, he came off the bench and nearly led a successful comeback against the Patriots. The home crowd gave him a standing ovation, according to the World Herald. About a month later, he came off the bench. This time, he scored two touchdowns in battling back from a 14-0 deficit to beat the Dolphins. After the game, a fan told him he could run for mayor some 23 years before Denver would elect his first African-American mayor. In his role, Briscoe took on an enormous weight both in trying to lead a pro football team as a rookie and in essentially representing his entire race. When James Harris, when Marlon Briscoe, and Joe Gilliam took the snap from center, it was like all of black America was taking that snap, journalist Roy S. Johnson told William C. Roden in third and a mile. When they completed the pass, it was as if all of Black America was completing that pass. When they fumbled, it was as it was as if all African Americans were fumbling the, that ball. They carried that burden with them, just as many other pioneers did. Briscoe understood that, but he tried not to think about it. Both for Black and white people, I had to prove something to every race, Briscoe says. But I never really let it be a burden. I couldn't be a quarterback and think if I throw an interception that somebody going to come at me. Verbally or whatever, if I throw an interception, it's part of the game. I'm not going to let it get me to the point where I can't perform. Beyond that, there was also the implicit understanding that black athletes carried with them when they were compared to fights. Many evaluators, coaches, managers, fans, media, whoever 
many of whom were white at the time, already saw black players like Briscoe at a disadvantage compared to white counterparts simply because implicit biases predisposed them to such thinking. This is something that Doug Williams, the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, knows Briscoe comprehended. As a black man playing quarterback, Williams says he knew in 1968 it wasn't about being two times better than the guy behind you. He had to be five times better. On the field, there were basically three areas Briscoe had to prove himself because of the racial biases at the time. There were a few things that society didn't think a black man could do, and three were think, throw, and lead, Briscoe says. Briscoe didn't need to do much work on his throwing ability. His unique elusiveness may have been his calling card, but his arm talent was evident. In Roden's third and a mile, Floyd Little said, in addition to Briscoe running the ball like Barry Sanders, he had a better arm than Michael Vick. From moving around left to right, he, he throws as accurately and as long as anybody, one teammate told Ebony Magazine. He's all over the place. He confuses the defense. The next of the three aspects that came was the leadership. The concern was that a black quarterback expected to garner the unquestioned commitment from other players as the maestro of the offense would have trouble leading white players. Those guys from Southern schools the black kids from Southern schools, they played with all black players and all black quarterbacks. So they were used to black quarterbacks, Briscoe says. So to them, it wasn't a big deal, but it was hard. I think for some of the white players, probably. But I never thought about it. Some white players took quickly to supporting Briscoe. They tackled Sam Brunelli was a good friend from the beginning who encouraged him and urged the guys to give it extra effort, Briscoe said in 1968. Don't let them touch the magician, Brunelli would exhort to his teammates, Briscoe recalls. Not all were so open-minded, Crabtree recalls, going to a dinner with several of the team's white players and hearing one of his teammates call Briscoe the N-word. For some rookies who attended Southern universities, it was possible they had never played even played with or against a black athlete as the majority of the SEC schools had yet to integrate. But Briscoe thought little of these concerns from the time playing youth football to his high school and college years. He had always played alongside white and black players alike. Now what I'm going to do right here is I'm going to pause and take a break and when I come back I will conclude this story. So stay tuned. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. I want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. 
That's right. Driven by you, the listener. So if you want to advertise or sponsor a segment, simply reach out to me at 316-553-2010 or hit me up at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com to get your ad or sponsorship rant on this podcast. Once again, A Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. You're listening to the A Train Sports Talk Podcast. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the heart. Welcome back as we continue the Marlon Briscoe story. That's right, you're listening to Moments in Black History Sports. And we're focusing on... Marlon Briscoe story. First African American quarterback start in the NFL. And we're in the third installment. And this is the second part of this story as I break it down into two parts. As the sounds of Tasha Cobb, literary voice resonates in the background as we give you this story. This is Black History Month. So we will always remember the history and the legacy that those have left behind, whether it be in everyday life or even in the sports life. This is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host conductor, Anthony Smith. So let's get back into this story. Never occurred to me that there would be any level of racism, Briscoe says now. It just never occurred to me. The reason was I played quarterback all my life on integrated teams. Instead, Briscoe preferred to let his play speak for him. If he could help them win, he figured they would have to give him at least some modicum of respect. Even the racist who called him the N-word behind his back. In his first action, when he came off the bench and nearly beat the Patriots with a fourth quarter comeback, Briscoe began to sense a sea of change. We almost pulled it out. And if I could see the difference in how these guys were treating me than they were before, not from a slanted position, but in a professional sports or any sport at any level, you learn respect for each other, Briscoe says. So with each week, I started to progress. Each week, the players, black and white, began to see if you can play the game, you gain respect. That's basically what I had to do and did do. The final aspect was the game's mental faucet. Since the Broncos had him practicing at cornerback until three weeks into the season, he did have some ground to make up as far as learning the offense. I didn't have the cerebral training at the position, Briscoe admits. As the season went along and I began to get more training, things developed for me. I threw quite a few interceptions, 
but that was because I didn't know what exactly I was supposed to do against these teams. As he resettled into the position, he set to catching up on what he'd missed. This may be easy for players today as they pursue as much video as their heart desires on team-issued tablets, but Briscoe had to take home a reel-to-reel projector and canisters of film in 1968. I will go home every day, Briscoe says. Other guys on the team, they go out and have a few beers and chase women or whatever if they're single. I would take a projector and film. I'd go home and study film. They didn't know what I was doing at night. I was at home in my apartment. Reading defenses was probably his greatest challenge, but he caught on quickly. He hasn't played that much, so he's inexperienced, said Coach Lou Saban in an Associated Press Wire story that year. But he's like a sponge. He absorbs everything. A record home crowd saw the evidence of this on October 27th when he won the game with a 10-yard touchdown run on a quarterback draw. Briscoe had changed the play at the line of scrimmage when he saw the Dolphins formation. From one week to the next, Briscoe was showing he could handle the game at his most important position. Now, with a chance to sell into the starting role for the final four games, it was time to prove he could handle the duties on a weekly basis. It took a little time for Briscoe to get settled. After re-entering the starting lineup for the final stretch of the season, it seemed like little was going right. In the first quarter of this game against the lowly Bills, Briscoe followed up underthrow with an overthrow on the first drive and didn't attempt a pass the second on the second then an open receiver dropped a deep throw at the quarters in neared briscoe had started over five and had been sacked once after an offside call denver faced second and 20. that pressure was all briscoe needed from the broncos own 10-yard line he dropped back and threw to denson for 38 yards two plays later they connected for 17 more on the first play of the second quarter, Briscoe scrambled and found Brendan McCarthy for a 40-yard touchdown. He followed up with two more efficient touchdown drives in the second quarter. Briscoe found Crabtree for a 15-yard score on the first. And on second, on the second, he floated a little screen pass over a leaping defensive lineman for a play that Little took to the house from 66 yards out. In the second quarter, Briscoe struggled to continue their hot streak. The, the Broncos struggled to continue the hot streak. Briscoe threw a painful pick six, though he soon atoned for it with his fourth touchdown of the day. Entering the final quarter, the Broncos held a commanding 14-point lead, but it would soon evaporate. The Bills quickly scored a touchdown and converted a two-point try. After Denver, after Denver missed one of two field goal tries, Buffalo blocked a punt and scored on the next play, cutting the lead to two points. After a failed onside kick with 115 left, the Broncos seemed at last to have the game wrapped up. Then this disaster struck. Little, running to his left on the sweep, tried to elude a tackler behind the line, but he stumbled and lost the ball. Buffalo recovered and took it to the 10-yard line. For whatever reason, perhaps to avoid losing yards or losing the ball themselves, the Bills opted to immediately kick the field goal and go up by one point with about 30 seconds left. All this set up one of the great legends of Broncos history. After the fumble, the notoriously explosive Saban 
fired Little on the spot. As Little walked toward the locker room, the offense gathered for their first play. I'm in the huddle, and Floyd wasn't in there, Briscoe recalled. Fran Lynch, his backup, was in the huddle. I called a timeout. Halfway to the locker room, Lil decided he had nothing to lose. He put himself back in the game and told Lynch to go back to the sideline. In the huddle, Briscoe dialed up a play just for Little to capitalize on his speed in a one-on-one matchup with a linebacker deep down the sideline. Briscoe scrambled to his left as the pass rush closed in. Eventually, heaving a bomb from near the numbers at his own 27-yard line in the eight to the 18-yard line on the numbers on the right side, a throw that traveled about 60 yards through the air. Little made a spectacular catch and then drew a face mask on With 10 seconds left, kicker Bobby Howfield made the 12-yard field goal to win the game. Briscoe has a strong arm for a little guy, Bill's head coach Howard Johnson said afterward. The little guy really moves around, and with guys like Denson and Crabtree, who are fast and can move, it's tough to cover. To the victor went the spoils, and on top of a hard-fought win, Briscoe earned several records until John Elway arrived in Denver. Briscoe held the franchise single-game rookie records for passing yards with 335 and touchdown passes before. Today, those marks are second and tied for first, respectively, in team annals. Until 2019, Briscoe was the youngest player in team history to throw for at least 300 yards. It was quite the start. Unfortunately for Briscoe and the Broncos, the road got much harder from there. After topping the Bills, Denver prepared to make to take on their three division rivals, each of whom were above 500. Against the high-powered Chargers, Briscoe did his best to keep pace and threw for 218 yards three touchdowns and zero interceptions. Though his 45.5 completion percentage left something to be desired. Still with San Diego putting up 47 points, you couldn't put the blame on Briscoe. After those two starts, he was making history and not just because of his race. Briscoe was the first Broncos quarterback ever to throw seven or more touchdowns across two consecutive games. To this day, he is still the only rookie in franchise history to accomplish that feat. For Broncos fans, Briscoe was a welcome departure from the Broncos' hapless run of searching for a quarterback who could capably lead their offense. In just the previous two seasons, Denver started an astounding six different players at the position. In our memory, if memory serves right, Vic Bocard of the Broomfield Star wrote December 5, 1968, it was only a few years ago that Broncos quarterbacks were hard-pressed to complete seven touchdown passes in one season. The next week, Denver faced the mighty 10-2 Raiders, the AFL's defending champions. The young Broncos were far outmatched against Oakland's team of veterans, including quarterback Daryl LaMonica, who was AP AFL Player of the Year the previous year. Yet Denver mustered perhaps its finest effort in going toe-to-toe with the Raiders on the road. Briscoe had his ups and downs in the game, but it's unquestionable that his efforts were key to Denver playing the game as close as it did. Early in the fourth quarter, the Broncos trailing by 10. Briscoe led an eight-play, 70-yard drive. He accounted for 55 of those yards, 15 on the ground, and 40 through the air, including the 26-yard touchdown pass to cap the drive. On the next drive, though, Briscoe watched as one of his passes bounced off the hands of one of his receivers, 